Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome back to the Legitimus Podcast here in the year 2020. Want to wish everybody a happy new year. Hope everybody had a great Christmas, a great and safe New Year's Eve, and that the new year so far here has been uh, very good for everybody. I know that it is already passing by at an incredible rate of speed, which is, I guess, par for the course. Uh, for anybody new out there, anybody who hasn't listened before, this is the Legitimus Podcast. We're going to talk about axes. We're going to talk about history. We're going to talk about anything axe-related, axe appreciation. And then we're also going to talk about the axe community. So I appreciate you guys taking the time out of your day and giving us a listen. If you get the opportunity on whatever platform that it is, give us a like, give us a comment, a little bit of feedback. Uh, always goes a long way. Let's let me know what's going on with the podcast. What do we need to tweak? What do we need to fix? Um, getting started here, obviously with the new year, we have the new podcast, a little bit of a different format. And I want to, first and foremost, I want to apologize to everybody out there that has been following the podcast. I appreciate everybody very much for taking the time listening. I know that that uh, is not always the easiest thing if you're on your commute, something like that. You still got to take time out of your day and listen. So I do appreciate that. I apologize for the time in between the episodes here. So we're at like four weeks, five weeks since the last episode. So I do apologize for that. Had some personal things going on. Had some issues going on with work that sort of backed me up a little bit. And uh, holiday season, obviously. So that just sort of uh, mushroomed into the perfect storm. Uh, But we are back and we are ready to go. Uh, So I do apologize for that. And like I said, I appreciate everybody uh, listening and sticking with it. Also then the new thing here with uh, the podcast here in 2020, a little bit of a different format, listen to a lot of feedback, talk to a lot of different people, uh, comments, things like that, and going forward here on the podcast, it's just going to be myself as the host. I will bring people on as guests, we will talk about various topics week to week, and uh, we're going to have a little bit of a different format for the podcast to try and get a little bit of structure, a little bit of regularity so that you guys know what to expect, what's coming on the podcast, things like that. Uh, We will still do the basics. Like I said, we're going to talk about history. Uh, We're going to bring people on. We're going to talk about them and their unique experiences and what they bring to the axe world and the axe community. And then we'll talk about some different subsets. So let's get into it. One of the first things then that we're going to do is that we're going to have what I'm going to call correspondence. This is a little bit of a spoof on like the news agencies, CNN, CNBC, whatever. Uh, But I basically call them boots on the ground. And what those are going to be are people that I want to get info from on a weekly basis as far as what's going on in their neck of the woods. What do they have going on in their lives that's acts related, um, whatever that is, history, purchases, stories, experiences, whatever that is. Have them bring that to me and then I'm going to put that out on the podcast then to be able to share with everybody. Because one of the things I've learned is that axes is a big topic it's very wide-ranging there's a lot going on with it there's a huge history with it there is a ton of information out there one man cannot tackle it all I wish that I could I wish that I knew it all Uh, unfortunately I don't so I need guys and gals to be able to help me out with this and the axe community has been very very rewarding with being open sharing talking to guys about stuff, swapping stories, things like that. You know, we see it online, we see it at the Axe Meetups, and I thought, what a better way then with this podcast that obviously reaches a lot of people that are interested in Axes, Axe history, all that stuff that comes with it, 
Like, let's get some insight. Let's get some information from these people that are out and about different areas of the country, uh, different interests, and what that means. Because obviously with axes, we know about the history and things like that, but axes are evolving. You listen to the last podcast, Mr. John Bradley, professional axe throwing champion, uh, blah, 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 right? That is a whole new aspect to axes that I know guys like myself are not very familiar with. We might not be a little bit comfortable with, but it's there and it's a part of the axe uh, community now. And that's a great thing. So we need guys like him to be able to educate us, uh, let us know what's going on and keep us informed. And so I wanted to bring these correspondents on and these will vary from week to week. We're going to have anywhere from, I don't know, six guys, 12 guys, and we can bring in more people. Obviously, if people have information to share, things like that, uh, I want to hear it. I want to know about it. I can't guarantee that we'll be able to get everybody's uh, information on every week, but we're definitely going to do our best. It will be evolving. Again, we'll tweak it as we go. There's no absolute rules to it, and I want to have fun with it. So there's no, you know, we don't have to have, you know, I don't know, grammarly correct uh, write-ups, you know, MLA format, one-inch margins, anything like that. I just want to hear about what's going on and uh, what do these people have to contribute. So we're going to have the correspondence. We're still going to have the pro tip. Uh, I thought the pro tip went over very well. A lot of guys got some info from that and we're able to learn from that. I think that that's very important. So we'll have the pro tips uh, with uh, each week. Uh, we'll have anything that's going on, buying, selling, what's going on with new products, uh, what's hot maybe on eBay right now, or maybe some things that we need to watch out for that might look a little suspicious. Let's talk about it. Again, make sure that we're all on the same page. Uh, we will talk about, again, the throwing axe world. So we will rely heavily on John for that as he continues to educate me and, and get me more up to date. I think that's important for the, for the overall community. Uh, one of the things that I've sort of shied away from, and I, I haven't uh, tried to hide this at all, is my affiliation with any kind of European axes, uh, Australian axes, things like that. And the reason for that was is that the whole North American axe game is just so overwhelming with everything that comes with it. I just sort of told myself, listen, you can't go down that, that road because you're going to get totally overwhelmed there. Um, in thinking about that and you know, listening to a couple of the old podcasts, I don't want those to be excluded. They're obviously part of the Axe history and the Axe game. Obviously, there's many companies over there um, creating some great products. So we need to involve those. And I'll be reaching out to people for that. Obviously, there are more people out there that can speak better to that than me. And I think that that's important to include it on the podcast, whether it's a minute, two minutes, uh, maybe some interviews, whatever that is. So we'll definitely have a... European Aussie update, Canadian update, which I'll speak to here in a minute. Um, I think that we'll have sort of like a new guy section. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of guys that continue to be um, new to the Axe Arena and what's going on with that. You know, what are they trying to do, especially if it's rehafting, you know, how to work on an axe, things like that. So we'll try and throw out some tips, tricks, do's and don'ts for those. We'll have a couple guys affiliated with that uh, as far as the correspondence as well to be able to help everybody out. Because again, that's part of the Axe community and I think that that's important. And then we'll have some overall interests and maybe just sort of spread out a little bit from Axes. Um, there's a lot of different, what I would call subsets or brother and sister interests with Axes. Blacksmithing comes to mind immediately. Uh, sawing, 
um, buck saws, uh, you know, felling saws, things like that, is part of that overall, you know, axe lumber uh, picture that we are trying to learn about. And what is that relationship? How do they go hand in hand? What is that all about? Uh, the filing piece, obviously very important. We've talked about that a little bit, but haven't really gone into depth. Uh, again, what to do, what not to do. And obviously there are some guys and gals out there that can speak to that very, very well. And it's important to be able to share that. So that's just a couple of the things that we're going to try and incorporate in on the on the podcast and get it as informative, as incorporated, make sure a lot of people are involved and, and go from there. We will still have the history piece. First and foremost, that's what most people have brought back to me and saying, let's talk history. That's what we want to know about, what's going on with these acts patterns, the, the companies, the timelines. That's what a lot of people want. So I will do my best to talk to that and try and open up a little bit of discussion. Maybe have, you know, one, two, three of these sessions that sort of go back to back to back. Um, because there is a lot of info out there. And again, it is uh, at times overwhelming. But we're going to do our best to be able to cover that. So today we're going to talk about Collins. We're going to go and sort of do like a brief outline slash overview of Collins, the timeline, what they were doing. It will not be all inclusive. It will not... Um, have every single aspect of Collins in it. It will not have every single date, etc., etc. But I think for someone listening, it should give you a better overall appreciation and viewing of Collins, what they were all about, and just what they meant to the Axe community overall. So that's sort of what we're going to do. That's a brief uh, overview of what's coming, what we're going to try and do. And again, it's going to be fluid. We're going to tweak it as we go. Each episode, we're going to try and keep it about one hour. And I think that that's a good limit for people, again, traveling. And again, you got to give that time up during the day, during the week, in order to be able to listen to a Yahoo like me ramble on about axes. So um, that's what we're going to shoot for again. We'll see how this all goes. We'll tweak it accordingly. So let's get into my new favorite subset. That's going to be the correspondence. So I asked a bunch of guys out here, if I didn't ask you, please don't feel bad. I was just sort of going off the top of my head. And some of the guys that I've known, like I said, I will be reaching out to other people. And the people that I did reach out to, we're not going to have everybody on today. So again, it'll be fluid. We'll change it up. Things like that. So I reached out to a bunch of these quote-unquote different correspondents, um, which I thought was hilarious. I think it's going to be great to add these guys in. Um, the first one then that I have here, he's on the, the top of the list, is a Mr. J.C. Messer. He is from uh, Messer Custom Leather. Make sure if you don't follow him, look him up on Instagram. Again, that's Messer Custom Leather. Uh, he's out in the Midwest. So he's going to be our quote-unquote Midwest correspondent. He's going to be bringing news and action, leather tips, axe tips, etc. from whatever's going on in the middle of the country there. So uh, asked him for a little bit of a follow-up. This is what he gave me. He said, hello from the Midwest. The weather is cold and wet, but the weather on the axe front is hot, hot, hot. Heard some rumors of many great finds, not only axes, but historical examples from the axe past. Line catalogs have seemed to pop up recently. Not just one or two, but double-digit numbers. They are within a modest budget to purchase, and I've heard that with some sweet-talking, you can get that number down a little bit. I can only imagine Messer sweet-talking somebody. I've had my hands on a few of these fine examples, and let me tell you, they are a super cool find and shows not only axes, but the ever-elusive next-level collecting, which obviously we've talked about on the previous episode, so I'm happy to 
or uh, happy that he mentions it. I guess I got one guy out there listening. Axe finds I have heard of recently include a very sweet tassie, some of the fire axe heads, uh, many good looking Michigans, and some of the really hard to find axes such as king cutters, and he has a uh, little joking sign in there. Uh, myself, being J.C. Messer, so far this winter I've had pretty good luck not only with axes but next level finds as well. Here in the heartland, it seems the Michigan pattern is prevalent to the majority of the finds, but the etchings and the stamps seem crisp and plentiful. On the next level side of things, I have found some king cutter and some bluegrass. Four in the hand found its way to my hand. Just this weekend, I came across some true temper displays, but they were just a little bit out of my reach, so we left them hang. The retail climate here in the crossroads is much like the rest of the world. You can run across good deals, and if feasible, you shouldn't pass them up. But the higher price items are not easy to pass up if you need it for your collection. So, as always, this struggle is real. So, in closing, keep searching, keep positive. You'll find that whale. You know it's out there. Mr. J.C. Messer. So, again, great update from the North, or excuse me, from the Midwest. Um, very, uh, you know, pertinent to what's going on right now. Obviously, there's, uh, there's a lot of things going on. A lot of people out with the holidays had some times off. You're able to get out and about, you know, uh, do a little bit of searching, antiquing, things like that. So as we've seen, especially on social media, some of the finds have come in and they've been awesome. And, uh, you know, he uh, obviously shows that there with him being out and about and some of the things that he was able to find. So very good there from Mr. J.C. Messer. Again, Messer Custer, Custom Leather on Instagram. Our next correspondent then is going to be a mr brent freeman which you've heard me talk about him on the podcast here before we have what's known as a love hate relationship one podcast i love him one podcast i hate him and it's usually from him trying to rake me over the coals about an axe or myself trying to rake him over the coals about an axe so it goes both ways but in all honesty i love the guy he's a great friend um located down in the south Here's what he has to say. Um, he goes, here's the latest from my vantage point. I was recently lucky enough to find two new old stock True Temper U.S. Forestry Services double bit axes. One was a flint edge and the other one marked TT for True Temper. These came out of the mountains of North Carolina. The story goes that a few years ago, a district got a new ranger and built a new center. A friend of the guy I know was told by the new ranger to take that old stuff and throw it in the dumpster. There was over a hundred axes and antique tools that had been there since the 50s and 60s, and she wanted them all thrown away. The new ranger was headed out of town on vacation, and the guy told her he would take care of it. My contact was fortunate enough to purchase a few of the axes from his friend, and now I'm lucky enough to get them from him. These two axes have never been, or excuse me, these two axes have never touched wood. In fact, they still had the factory green rubber seal on them, but the guy removed it because they were cracking. They are currently on their way to me. Let's hope that they make it safe. What I take away from all this is beside the two axes, there's still a lot of axes out there, and we'll be able to share a similar story. You just have to dig deep, keep your ears and eyes open. So that's a great story there from Freebie. Uh, that reminds me of the, which I believe is called the Oregon Caper where some of those new old stock forestry service axes were found and still had, um, which they mention on here, the green, what was it, rubber? Um, actually, that was green wax that came, that was put on the bits in order to protect them. Sometimes you'll be able to find those with that on there, sometimes you won't. 
Regardless, he sent me a picture of those two axes. Let me tell you, they're pristine. They haven't touched anything. Doesn't even look like they've seen sunlight. So you talk about a great find out and about and, you know, just coming across things like that. They are still out there. Again, it's uh, right time, right place, right person that you're talking to. So that's a great find from Freebie there, our southern correspondent. Uh, one of our other correspondents then, we are going to have our Pacific Northwest correspondent. That's going to be George. He is known as I Think Very Deeply on Instagram. If you guys haven't checked out his Instagram, please make sure that you do. A lot of great axes on there. Some new old stock stuff, but then also axes that have a history, that have a story, that have a tale to them. That are um, just mesmerizing whenever you look at them. And, and I think about them like, oh man, where has that been? Just imagine the uh, the history behind that piece. He's going to be our Pacific Northwest guy. Obviously, there's a lot of um, what I call leftover action there. That was sort of like the last uh, heyday for the axis as the progression moved west. So there's still some pieces to be had out there, especially more logging industry. He will be able to provide us with uh, some of that info. And then some of those unique pieces that came out of there, like off of Vancouver Island, you know, I immediately think uh, about the undercutter axe, what that was like out there. There's also a cable axe, which him and I talked briefly about. So we're going to have him on the show. He's going to come on as a guest at some point. Not really sure when that is. But his perspective on those pieces, what was going on during those times, and what that market, what that climate looks like out there in the Pacific Northwest is going to be very, very uh, telling. Can't wait to do that. But he's going to be our Pacific Northwest correspondent. So again, I think very deeply on Instagram. Make sure you give that guy a look. Now, in the same area, then, we have to have what I call our Canadian correspondent. Now, tell me that doesn't just roll off the tongue. Awesome. Canadian correspondent. That's going to be Colby uh, with Owen's Axe and Handle uh, as part of the whole Lama or the Lamica Axe Group. Uh, doing some really great things right now. More so than that, he has an outstanding collection of new old stock heads. Um, some American, mostly Canadian, obviously, with uh, with where he's from up there. But, you know, some of the historical pieces that he has, um, some of the history behind those, really, really good. So, again, on Instagram, Owens Axe and Handle. Uh, he had just got into some log stamps last night, actually, where he was able to get about, uh, oh, I don't know, about two dozen off of a guy. Great historical pieces. We were discussing that as far as their use, what they're made out of, things like that. So again, not an axe per se, but definitely really thoroughly involved in that whole axe business. So again, if you guys aren't checking him out, please make sure that you do that. Um, on a couple of these other topics then, like if we're talking about what are some of the interests out there that sort of go along with axes, obviously Colby and the whole stamp mark um, thing goes, goes with that. But one of the other things I thought it was really important is, you know, those, the sort of like the side stories, the brother and sisters to the axes and what's going on. So I couldn't think of anybody more perfect for that than uh, Josh from Wyoming Axe Works. Uh, if you haven't seen his stuff on Instagram, please make sure that you do. He is into leatherworking, creates some amazing leather pieces. He is into the crosscut saws, filing them, how to properly maintain them, um, trying to bring them back to life and restore them. He's also, uh, of course, doing axe work, and some of the things that he's done has been really, really great out of there. So again. Wyoming Axe Works. He's going to be giving us some updates. They're probably going to be mostly saw related, but what I want to know from him is 
you know, what does that whole axe saw piece look like, its roles, because not a lot of guys know about those. We've seen them. You see them at flea markets, things like that. But what would you have to do if you had to take care of that? What does that restoration piece look like? Um, I know I don't know anything about that. I know a little bit about the teeth, but I know that there's a specific process of do's and don'ts that you got to do in order to make sure that that thing's going to cut like a hot knife through butter. And he's going to have the ability to do that. Um, so he has an update here for us as well. Um, again, out in Wyoming, a little bit of a different, uh, different area, obviously, than what's going on in Pennsylvania. He says, meanwhile, in Wyoming... I started out the new year by reorganizing the shop for the 116th time in the last five years. I wanted to consolidate all my crosscuts to one location rather than hanging on any open wall space. The backs of my shop doors stacked in the corners. So I pulled all of my woodworking tools into the one room of my shop and the other is all leatherworking and saws now. I only found two dead mice while cleaning. So I guess that is a bonus indeed. The new saw cabinet holds 40 plus saws and will keep them rust free and not clanging when I open and close the doors. While I was at it, I made a wall hanging box for all my crosscut handles. I should have made it larger because I found another bucket of handles while reorganizing. I got three saws filed over the weekend, two three and a half foot champion tooth hardwood saws and a five foot Simmons 520 peg and raker saw. I only drew a little blood in the process. On my leather bench, I have a really awesome old K-Bar from World War II that's getting a new sheath, a couple tote bags, a Pulaski sheath. I picked up a bunch of new leather just before Christmas, so I look for some new things coming out in the coming weeks. Did drink some local great IPAs this weekend too, between fireball shots poured through an elk head. You can see these pictures on my, of these shenanigans on my Instagram. More for, more for next week if I haven't frozen to death. So, obviously, he's, you know, that whole saw thing is really interesting to me and has that aspect of the axe industry. This whole thing with the IPAs, I mean, I know he's trying to draw me in right now. Um, George is a big IPA guy, has sent me beer. We talked about that on the previous podcast. I gave him a little, uh, a little tough love about the IPAs. As soon as he sent that to me, I was like, hmm, IPA, huh, you're out. Uh, but I appreciate guys and what they like and what they don't like. Again, IPA is not for me. We're going to leave it at that for this broadcast. But um, that's great to hear. He's getting a lot done. Again, if you haven't checked him out, Wyoming Axe Works. We are then going to have Mr. John Bradley, which hopefully everybody remembers from the last podcast. He is our professional axe throwing correspondent. A lot going on. Obviously, they had the championships and everything coming up from our last podcast. So what he has to tell me is, from the world of axe throwing, We would like to congratulate Sam Carter on winning the 2019 World Axe Throwing League Championship. He was absolutely on fire that day and throwing the Flying Fox with a modified handle and a thin profile on the head. Yesterday, on January 5th, there was a round one for the International Axe Throwing League Championship. And it looks like round one consisted of 75 hatchet and 15 big axe throwers, if I'm reading that right. Best scores move on. Big Axe is the tiebreaker. Official results will be out in a few days for those who qualified from round two. Also then, I guess in round two, there's going to be a 256-person double elimination tournament with a total of $50,000 in the prize pool. So this whole thing with axe throwing, man, if you have any doubts or hesitations about it, it ain't no joke. This thing is going. Uh, He also says that with the new year, 
most of the venues are starting new leagues. So if anybody has any ideas or if they want to join up, now is the time and you need to skip bowling. So uh, that's pretty funny. But again, he's going to be our axe-throwing correspondent. If you're not familiar with him, the real John Bradley on Instagram. So great guy. He has a lot going on. I appreciate him with all the info on the axe-throwing front. Um, one of the guys also is going to be uh, Nathan Trueblood. Uh, he's on Instagram as Nate True, N-A-T-E-T-R-U. He's going to be our Alexandria, Indiana correspondent. If you guys aren't familiar with that, Alexandria housed one of the early Kelly plants in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, they then subsequently moved to Charleston. He is at that. He is a diehard Kelly Alexandria guy. Um He's been out traveling, family stuff, things like that. So we didn't have a contribution for this week. But what I can tell you is that just in a little uh, s a snippet here, from what he's shown me the last few days, some of the information that he has pertaining to that plant in Alexandria is absolutely mind-blowing from a historical piece. I can't wait to see more of it. I want to get him on here. We need to talk about it because that whole Alexandria piece of history for Kelly a lot of times it just gets looked over. Not a lot of guys talk about it. It was a few years, you know, roughly about eight years, give or take. So it sort of gets looked over. We need to talk about that, and he's going to be our correspondent for that, and I can't wait. Uh, another guy this week, not really going to be on, but we got uh, the man known as Rooster. Obviously, uh, anybody in the Axe community is usually familiar with him. Um, you know, obviously familiar with his dealings with counsel. Um and what he has going on there, obviously with the social media, Axe Junkies, things like that. He's sort of going to be our American manufacturing representative. Keep us abreast of any kind of new changes, maybe new products. Give us a little insight to what's going on with that whole piece of the business. Being able to provide some insight on basically anything Axe related. Some of his history and what he brings to the table. Uh, we'll get into that more whenever uh, I get a little bit of a tidbit from him. But obviously a little bit of short notice for him. But he's going to be our Axe Manufacturing uh, correspondent, Rooster Mod, out there on, on Instagram. If you guys don't know already, you can find him on Facebook. Uh, another guy that's going to be with us, not on this week, is going to be Mr. Matt Justice. Uh, we mentioned him on the podcast from time to time. He's uh, on Instagram as Beaver Creek Woodcraft. Does a lot of projects, restorations, things like that. A little bit more known for his Finnish axes or axes from Finland. Again, one of the ones that I sort of swore off, said, listen, I, I just can't go down that road. He's mentioned to me a couple times, Mike, listen, you, you got to look at these. These are awesome. Uh, you need to just check these out. I did uh, have one of his in my hands at a Killinger meetup the one time. He did, I just, over the top, great work on it. So if anybody's interested in those, please make sure that you hit him up. Uh, but he's going to be on there to be able to talk about that particular axe. Again, it's sort of a subset of the axe world, but very important. Not a lot of guys know about it. I know myself included. I know the very basics, and that's it. And to say I know the basics is probably giving a little bit of too much praise to myself. So we're going to have him on. He's going to talk about that, maybe give us some updates, um, You know, get us a little bit more knowledgeable with that finish axe. Again, that's Beaver Creek Woodcraft on Instagram. Check him out. Uh, other one then, we're going to have a Mr. Brandon Roost. If you guys are familiar with him, Risky, <laughs> Risky, uh, Whiskey River Trading Company. Provides a lot of handles, different uh, axe-related products, uh, affiliation with uh, Council then as well. 
He is uh, going to be sort of like our entrepreneur, new business, startup, pro tips, do's and don'ts kind of guy. Very experienced with a lot of different aspects of business. Um, social media, online presence, do's and don'ts, how to get things going, how to properly communicate with people. Anytime I've ever talked to this guy, I come away smarter. I think it's probably the biggest compliment that I can give him is that I learned something one way or another, whether it's a little tidbit about this, whether it's something about business I didn't really know, and it's not him trying to educate me, it's just you pick up on those things whenever you talk to him. So he has on here, again, he's a Whiskey River Trading Company on Instagram, also affiliated though with Official Council Tool Dealer on Instagram. So he has on here, we are around 400 followers short of the 10,000 follower mark. Uh, once we hit the 10K mark on the page, we will be doing a huge giveaway with many renowned makers and craftsmen being included. Give a follow at Official Council Tool Dealer on Instagram. And then he had a little pro tip of the week. He thought that that was a pretty good idea. So pro tip of the week coming from Brandon is photographs are what sells products. Take and post as many as possible. Make sure to remember that the devil is in the details and that these details will sell your piece. Most modern smartphones have a portrait mode. Grab yourself the dusty stoplight in the corner and you are 80% there. Just focus. Click and don't overthink it. I think that that's great advice, especially for people. You know, you're trying to get your Instagram going maybe. You're trying to get out there in the restoration world, things like that. People want the eye candy. They want to see what's going on. Uh, that's what's going to draw them in. But again, at the same time, keep it simple. Don't overdo it and make sure that you do it correctly. So again, if anybody doesn't know, on Instagram, that 10,000 mark is sort of like the magic mark. That's when Instagram recognizes people as, I guess, being legit. Um, they're going to put the time in, and then that's when they start showing your pictures to more people on a more regular basis. Thus, you're going to get more exposure. Thus, you're going to get more followers. So it's, it's a, it can be a struggle trying to get to that 10,000 mark. Once you get there, then usually things take off as long as you're active, putting out good content. So let's make sure that we help those guys out and that we do our best to be able to help them get there. That giveaway, I'm not really sure what that's all about, but I'm, I know it'll be awesome. Again, official council tool dealer on Instagram. Last but not least then, out of these guys that I have written down here, is a man called Killinger. Might have heard of him. He's into leather. He's into axes. He loves New Orleans. He loves chainsaws, and he also loves goats, if you guys haven't heard. So he's going to be our leather Norland goat correspondent out of the great state of Ohio. Um, he's been busy. If you haven't seen, he is uh, really getting after YouTube. So if you guys aren't following his YouTube channel, make sure that you get out there, look that up, give him a sub, set that bell so that you get the notification whenever his stuff's coming. Uh, but he's, you know, posting a lot of content, you know, almost like a homesteading thing now with uh, with his place, which is really awesome. Obviously, the goats, we know about them um, and what he's doing. Uh, they're getting big. I mean, they are growing. So it'll be interesting to see with uh, their whole process and what that looks like and what the summer is going to bring. They're just mowing down everything over there that they could possibly eat, which is hilarious. But obviously, Killer's got a lot going on the leather front, SRO, different things like that axes restoration then uh, the leather work obviously so um killinger official is where he's at on instagram if you're not following him and no worries he'll be back on uh 
for a guest, which I will totally rake him over the coals whenever I get him back on. So that's sort of our correspondence and what we had going on there, you know, in the buying, selling, you know, the Europe, Aussie update, things like that. One thing I do want to mention is I was talking, messaging with what, or with who some guys call Uncle Brian Murray, obviously based out in Australia. So if you guys haven't been following along, haven't been seeing, Australia is literally a hot mess right now. It's extremely hot. Wildfires are raging out of control. Um, a lot of destruction down there. So please make sure that you're looking out for those guys and gals down there if there's anything that people can do to help. I know he, Brian was trying to sell some of his axes to raise money to give to the firefighters down there. I know a few of the countries now have been sending support and relief help. Uh, America, Canada, you know, sending some firefighters, personnel, equipment, things like that. So it's not just like a fire. I mean, this is a big deal with uh, with what's going on down there. So please make sure that we take some time, support, support them, uh, reach out to them if we can. Anything that you guys can do. He is doing okay down there. And... Um, you know, I just told him that I wished him well, and if there's anything I could do to let me know. So we will be handling that. But um, Brian Murray's sort of going to be the on-again, on off-again, down-under correspondent Australian host. So hopefully everything gets turned around down in Australia, and they can get that uh, get that righted. I mean, that is a heck of a situation going on down there if you guys have been paying attention. But All right, so that's our correspondence. Like I said, we're going to add some more. So if you guys are interested, please let me know. We will uh, we'll tweak that. We'll you know bring some stuff in. Whatever guys want to talk about. It was a little long today, so we'll probably keep it to like five correspondence weeks. Or excuse me, a week. And, uh, and then we'll go from there. But into our historical piece. So I said we're going to talk about Collins. Uh, Collins being one of the largest edge makers during its time in America. Has a long history to it. Uh, this is going to be the brief overview, so let's quit talking about it and let's get after it. So, Collins originally started in 1826 with brother Sam and David and then their cousin William, and they started in Canton, Connecticut. Basically, what they saw is that the local blacksmiths were not able to produce a good enough quality product and they weren't able to produce the numbers that people needed. So they were looking for a business, and this is what they decided to do. They had a little bit of blacksmithing history, a little bit of axe history between them, but they decided to go out to uh, go and get after this. So 1826, they uh, start up the business. They basically hired all the blacksmiths in the area, which I believe to start was right around 12 or 13 blacksmiths. Uh, at that particular time, again, 1820s, blacksmiths were hard to find. They just weren't all over the place. Um, so they hired everybody that they could from the possible area. Um, at that time, 1829, then they're using charcoal for their fires, which I remember whenever I visited the Collins plant, they, uh, one of the old timers there told me that in order to produce the fire for one of the furnaces, it took 600 acres of wood per year to be able to, uh, make that furnace go. So if you stop and think about that, that is a ton. They had multiple furnaces going in that factory. Uh, the one gentleman said that in the early 1800s, as you looked around there, it was very, uh, you know, a lot of hillsides, very hilly. There wasn't a tree to be found, uh, which I found astonishing, astonishing because, you know, it was a very wooded area. But basically that's when they were using charcoal. So they would actually harvest the wood, turn that into charcoal, and then put the charcoal into the furnaces. One of the other subsets then, uh, a story that I learned in Collinsville is that there were guys there that had found old mounds in the woods and they thought that they were like Indian burial mounds well what they were is that they were actually old charcoal mounds 
from the guys that were processing the firewood in order then to give to Collins to be able to run the furnaces. So there was a period there where they thought that they had a huge archaeological find, but it was the charcoal, the leftover charcoal mounds that they had in the area there. Um, so they used charcoal. They actually used charcoal up to 1829, and then right around 1830, they switched over to Lehigh Coal, which Collins was actually the first edge maker in the world to use coal then for its furnaces in 1830. Uh, business started to grow. You know, we're about four or five years in now. In 1831, there was 21 duplex houses created. In 1832, 24 more were created. And what's interesting about this is where the river is that comes through where the Collins plant is, those duplexes were on the other side of the river, like in the, in the subset of the town. They weren't actually over where the plant was. So these guys had to walk across that bridge every day uh, going to work and then leaving and going back home. One of the stories then that the old timers told was Sam Collins was very fond of his employees, wanted to make sure that they were taken care of and that they were um, never in need, never had any wants. And so these guys would leave at night after their shift and they used to call it, I guess, the Clank Crew is what one of the old timers there told me. I don't know if that's accurate or not doesn't really matter but these guys would leave the factory they'd be walking across the bridge and you would hear a clank every once in a while as you would hear a tool a hatchet a machete whatever it was an axe fall out of these guys pants as they were walking back home because they had it stuffed on their pants and collins and the security crew sam collins they just turned a blind eye blind eye to it because they wanted to make sure that these guys were being taken care of so I found that very interesting from an ownership standpoint. Um, I mean, could you imagine that going on today? I mean, that would be obviously a whole other world. Um, all right, so right around 1830, 1832, we have the houses being built. There was another gentleman then that comes on the scene, 1832, Elijah K. Root, um, which was not so much in the production of axes. He was more into the machinery and how to improve them and how to improve the processes. He starts off with Colt, or excuse me, he starts off with Collins, sort of rises up through the ranks, and then a, uh, he later then moves to a company called Colt, Colt Firearms. Um, Mr. Colt had came and took a tour of the Collins factory, and during that tour, basically recruited Root and took him. And because of the inventions and the ability to improve the processes from Root, Obviously, we, we know the basic story of Colton being one of the largest firearm producers and, you know, quote-unquote, how they won the West and everything along those lines. So, very interesting that he started with Collins and then migrated to Colt. Um, so, right around this time, you have Canton, Connecticut is where they started. Well, it ended up then that South Canton, with Collins plant being there, gets renamed to Collinsville uh, right around about 1830. And what's interesting is that Sam Collins never actually knew about that. They, they just did that sort of in honor of the Collins plant. And he would have actually preferred the town to be called Collins Ford or Collins Ford. So that's an interesting piece of history. I'm not sure if a lot of people know about. So in, to honor them, you know, in, in the business and I'm sure all the parcels and the mail and things, they actually ended up renaming the town to Collinsville. Um, 1834, you got a little bit of restructuring then with the business. So they've been in business about eight years, nine years now. And basically what happened is that they were so successful that they almost swamped themselves. So they had a reorganization, 1834, to the Collins Manufacturing Company. Sam Collins actually steps down from his president role. And uh, 
is in other sub-roles uh, during this time now. 1843 then, so if we go ahead nine years, ten years, another reorganization, we go to the Collins Company. Sam Collins then regains the president, uh, which he will have until then he steps down on his own. Uh, as I was talking about with Samuel Colt, you know, he visits the Collins plant in 1836, and that's when he ends up stealing root um, from them and um, having them go to the, to the Colt plant, which was uh, not that far away. This is sort of a transition time now when we're in this like 1840 period. And this is when Collins first starts to get into the foreign market. Which again, you got to think about where we're at. 1840s. Uh, Kelly's not around. Plum's not around. Manhedge isn't around. Warren's not around. Blah, 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 blah. So Collins has this opportunity to get into the foreign market that not a lot of the other um, manufacturers, blacksmiths, etc. have. And this is why you will see the use of the name Hartford with Connecticut, or excuse me, with Collins. They didn't actually have any kind of plant or anything like that in Hartford. Obviously, they're in Collinsville or Canton. But Hartford was obviously a seaport. So that meant that people coming and going were more familiar with the Hartford name than obviously they were with Canton or Collinsville. That's not quote-unquote on the map. So they did have in the stores in Hartford, they had very prominent displays of the Collins tools. And as you had people that were traveling back and forth to the Hartford seaport, they would see these tools. And that is where Collins started to get the recognition and then be able to expand that foreign trade and build up that market. So this started right around about 1840 into that 1845 time frame. Um, but that's why that Hartford name is out there. That Hartford name we'll talk about here in a second. It goes up until about 1837. And I'll explain why they don't use it after that. Um, but what they had found is that Collins at this time was able to make a very high quality axe. And so guys, again, they come, they see these products, and they're like, well, listen, if you can make a high-quality axe, could you make me a very high-quality machete? Could you make me a knife? Things along those lines that I could take to these other you know, Latin America, Cuba markets where we are in need of those because Europe can't supply them or they're charging too much. So 1845, as the story goes, you actually have a gentleman from Cuba that they were importing machetes from Europe, and said, listen, you know, I can't handle this anymore. Cost is too high. The, the quality is too low. He actually gave a sketch to Collins and said, can you make this? And this became then the first machete model that is on the sample board or on the Collins numbering of samples that they have. So this starts that process, 1845 for Collins getting into the foreign market. Basically some guy from Cuba saying, listen, I need a better product, can you make this? And they're like, yeah, absolutely. So that's their number one model for machete. Uh, 1840s then, 1860, things are taking off. Collins is actually importing iron and importing steel from various countries in, in Europe, uh, England, things like that. 1860, Collins actually gets a, their own patent for casting steel tools. And that was a game changer because now you could actually take, you had machinery then to be able to cast those tools instead of having to do all the uh, forging process. So you're able to cut down on time, labor, effort, material, etc. They were one of the first companies to be able to do that. Um, 1846, 1848 then, they sort of make an, an association with New York. So obviously if we're talking about port cities, you got Hartford, which is bigger than Collinsville. New York obviously dwarfs both of those. So during this time, this is where you'll see a few of those pieces that are out there where Collins 
has the identification with New York. Makes sense from a business standpoint at the time. Um, that's obviously the bigger, bigger port. You're going to get more name recognition, more notoriety. You're going to be able to drive business, and that's exactly what happened. Um, up until this point then, 1957, their popularity is off the charts. They're providing quality tools to many different countries, uh, um, not only in our hemisphere, you know, over into Europe, things like that. This then is where the forgeries start. And this is where different companies are actually using the Collins name and trying to sell their products as Collins products. So 1857, 1858, uh, 1860, Collins sues 13 different manufacturers in England, various different manufacturers in Germany, and wins those cases and they um, did that in order to be able to protect their name like I said uh, of the popularity but we're talking about 1857 this is going down not 2020 so it's just a you know you can see how business was back in that day that you already had people trying to forge your products or you know steal and, and be forgeries uh, I just find that very interesting that that was going on then if you look at like what was going on with the rest of the world um, so at this time if we hit 1860 Collins is able to produce up to 300 different patterns of axes, machetes, different miscellaneous tools. They have 350 men employed at the Collinsville plant. So what happens next now if we're looking at overall history? Civil War hits. And obviously, huge piece of history. Um, Collins was able to supply 200,000 bayonets to the Northern Army. Those went along with, you know, obviously the Colt rifles, things like that. Um... They were a major player in the Civil War. They had many different contracts producing many, many different um, what I call smalls or small items. Bayonets, picks, shovels, different things like that. They were able to produce that. 1868 rolls around. We're in the post-war era now. Um, Collins now employs 638 employees at the Collinsville plant. Uh, turning around then, so now we get to 1876. And so we're at the 50-year mark for the Collins Company, which obviously is in the blink of an eye. Uh, right around this time then, this is when Collins, due to everybody coming in and saying, hey, can you make this, can you make that? This is when Collins is using what's known as the sample boards. And basically what this was is that you had wooden replicas of the items that Collins could create. And they had these on sample boards, like a four by eight sheet. So imagine like a four by eight sheet of OSB. They would have these then on there, and they would have them numbered. So if you came to the plant, or then you would be able to look at these off paper, and you would say, I want the number three, and I want however many dozen. That is sort of like their cataloging process for the day. Those sample boards would eventually um, go up to 1,260 individual patterns with over 1,300 different patterns of all kind of tools made. Axes, hatchets machetes obviously and then we're not talking about some of the bigger stuff that Collins made during this time like so post-civil war up to the 20s Collins was basically making anything that you could possibly think of axes boys axes hatchets machetes plows shovels ads picks um, whatever really big into the plow game at this time uh, I've never actually seen a Collins plow um, actually take that back there was one at Collins uh, at the at the historical society in Collinsville I've never seen one out in the wild, so to speak. But this is a time now of really great growth for Collins. So we're talking post-Civil um, post War up to about the 1920s. Collins is going gangbangers, and they're just going all over the place. 
1876 then as i mentioned this is the 50 year anniversary so they have a centennial ex exhibition in philadelphia and they had these huge boards where they put all their products on there encased in glass they won many awards for it they were able to showcase everything most importantly though during 1876 they brought out what we mostly know collins for and that is what most guys know as the legitimus mark the crown the arm and the hammer they brought that out in 1876 in order to try and crush as much of the forgeries that they possibly could. Um, again, 1876, we're 50 years past. One of the things that I'll bring up on, a, on one of the next podcasts, it's very interesting that there was an arm and hammer patent for a logo in 1827 submitted. And it wasn't by Collins. So there's a little bit more to this backstory, I think, than Collins just come up with his mark. So we'll get into that at a later podcast, but that's just a little snippet of information, a little teaser there for you guys. 1876, they patent the mark, the legitimus mark as we know about, uh, which, mean, which means genuine, and that it is tried and true. It's Collins. Look for that mark. Um, Post-Civil War, then, as I said, Collins is in major global expansion. They are going all over the place. They have Collins tools that are documented going to the North Pole excursion. They are used extensively on the Siberian Railroad over in Russia. They are all over the Philippines. They're obviously in Latin America, Cuba, things like that. One interesting piece is that they were not found in Africa. And the reason for that is because England and Germany basically had the stranglehold on Africa until maybe we get into World War II, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. But Collins was all over the place for the most part from a global standpoint, except in Africa. What's going on now with Collins is that their foreign business is going off the charts. They are exporting as fast as they possibly can. They're making machetes. They're going all over the place. Unfortunately, what's happening is that their domestic business is declining because they are so focused on their foreign business. Um, a lot of this is, if you look, you know, we got to think about where we're at. So 1876 up to about 1920. What happens in 1890? American Axe and Tool Company comes along, right? You got the consolidation of 14, 16 different axe companies into the one big boy. You got Kelly, who has now started to take off. You got Plum is now in the game. You got Warren is in the game, 1895. Man Edge Tool for, again, different pieces and parts there of that timeline. They are now in the game. So now you got the big boys in the domestic axe game. And I think Collins, they just couldn't handle it. They they had their name, but they were so focused on the foreign trade and trying to fill those orders that their foreign business went up, but their domestic business went down. It was an interesting piece I was able to come across. It was around 1901 to 1903. There's actually correspondence between American Axe Tool and Company and Kelly about the price fixing of axes and having to bring those prices down on domestic axes. There's no mention of Collins at all, which technically should have been a top three manufacturer from a volume standpoint. But yet they're not in that discussion, uh, which I found very interesting. So that sort of helps to paint that picture and tell that tale as far as what was going on there. Uh, but basically now, 1890s, 1920s, as far as domestic access, the race is on. And they're going to have to get after it. 1920s goes through. We get to the 1930s. What happens in the 1930s? Great Depression. 30 through 39, roughly. Um, you know, Collins does provide access for the CCC, WPA, those different organizations. Um, they were, though, able to sort of brunt the 
Great Depression a little bit better than the other guys because they did have the foreign markets. They still were, were hurt because it was a global depression, but they were able to handle that a little bit better than some of the other companies. And I think a great example of that is that we got to remember Kelly, who at the time was now the big boy because they had bought out American Axe in 1920. They get bought out by American Fork and Ho in 1930. Collins keeps chugging along. So I think that sort of helps to paint that picture as well. We get through 39. What happens then in a few short years? World War II opens up. And what does this do? This actually helps to open up the market of South America even more to Collins. And the reason for that is, is now they don't have the direct competition from England and Germany in the South American market. Obviously, the war is going on. Um, the shipping and that whole piece with the German submarines, uh, the wolf packs, things like that, that's a different ball game. That opens up that opportunity then for Collins to increase their grip in South America even more. Um, very interesting that they had to, Collins during World War II, I believe it was 1943, had to actually persuade the War Production Board to not shut off the production and the supply of steel available to Collins. Because obviously we had to have all the steel, iron, etc. that we that we could for the war effort and making all the machinery and everything associated with that that we needed for the war. Collins went to them and said, hey, listen, we need that steel to come here. And here's the reason why is that we are producing these products that are going to South America where then we import all kind of other products then from South America that they have the ability to produce from us giving them the tools that they need. A lot of that was the fruit bananas different things along that that line some of the grain sugar things along those lines and you needed that for the war effort obviously an army cannot march on an empty stomach and so the board was actually convinced then by collins to not um, suspend the supply of steel to them and they were able to keep their business going during world war ii where some of the other manufacturers did have quotas put on them as far as how much material they were able to actually get thus affecting their business. So I found that as a very interesting uh, piece of information. During World War II, there was roughly about 3 million machetes issued uh, to the armed forces. Just a little bit over 1 million of those was produced by Collins. Um, the other 2 million were produced by the other manufacturers on contract from the, uh, from the government. Uh, Post-war, 1946, 4 million machete, machetes to Latin America from Collins alone in 1946. 1948, we're hitting about 12,000 tools a day of production from Collins. So not, not bad, not bad at all. What happens here, though, is that you got a couple of different things going on with Collins. They're obviously heavy into the foreign market. The domestic axe market is, is on the steady decline. We're post-World War II, chainsaws taking over, etc. Still have a market that, that they dominate in South America. Um, so what they find is that in the 50s then, these comp or excuse me, these countries, especially in Latin America, South America, they sort of have like a renaissance. You know, they're becoming players now post World War II. They start putting tariffs on these products that are coming in because they want to try and build their own companies or companies in their countries. That hurts Collins. Obviously, we don't want to have to be paying those tariffs, and we don't want to have to be charging, you know, for those and losing money. So, in the fifties. They start producing or making plants, manufacturing facilities in the South. So 1954, they open up a plant in Mexico. 1956, open up a plant in Brazil. 57 in Colombia in 1965, then obviously later in Guatemala. Those plants 
take up a total of four-fifths of the business for Collins altogether. So now the domestic home-based Collins plant is only making one-fifth of the total revenue for Collins in late 50s, early 60s. The other thing then that happens with Collins that I don't know if a lot of people know about is that they have a very devastating flood, August 18th and August 19th, 1955. It shuts them down in the Collinsville plant in Connecticut for 11 months. So no tools are coming out of Collinsville during this time. Now, if anybody knows, Collins did buy Warren Axon Tool Company in 1950, and they ran that plant until 1958. So they did have the ability to produce some of the products there that they needed, but you, obviously you can see this is just a perfect storm brewing. The domestic axe market is pretty much done for them. They didn't have any kind of domestic influence in the first place. Their foreign, um, foreign sales are going off the charts. They're opening up plants um, in the south. The flood hits. We have no production capability out of Collins um, in Connecticut for 11 months. We have limited manufacturing capability out of Warren up until 1958. So you can sort of see now where the writing is on the wall and what we have going on. Business obviously continues to decline. June 1st, 1966, managed tool company that ends up buying Collins. Um, so we're talking about quite a run, 140-year run for the company. Um, I think it just shows different aspects of the business, what they were into, and we didn't even touch on a lot of things. Again, this is a basic once overview of Collins, but I don't think a lot of people know all that. There's a lot of different sub-stories in there, especially from some of the old-timers that told me some of the stories. Um, Whenever I was up in Collinsville, I'll give you a real quick one. Sam Collins wanted the town to be dry. He hated alcohol. He didn't want his workers to have it. So the town then was considered dry. You had to go out of town, and right on the town line, there was a bar there, of course, and they called it Blood and Guts. So once the workers all got off of work, they'd stumble across the bridge going back. Of course, they're dropping stuff out of their pants. It's clanking off all the stuff that they took. They'd go to their duplex houses, which they were actually paying Collins rent for. They would then have to hike it out of town, go to Blood and Guts. And it was called Blood and Guts for a reason, which I'm sure you guys can figure out. So that's just a very interesting story with Collins and, you know, just a piece of their history. But it was quite the run for 140 years. Um, you know, technically, I guess you can make the argument that they weren't over. When Man Edge Tool bought them in 66, they continued their axe line as the Collins axe, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me if the Collins doesn't have that name from a domestic standpoint why would you use that name but what I will tell you and we will cover on another podcast is that whenever the Waddells bought Man Edge in 66 they brought one of the main players from Collins with them and they got into this whole marketing thing Collins um, axe hit but then also right after that Norland came and that has to deal with the guy that came from Collins. So we will get into that. It's a little teaser for you there. But overall, the Collins company, what a great run. 140 years all over the place. I mean, you're talking about the Roaring Twenties, the Great Depression of the Thirties, World War II, the Civil War. Um, you know, there was a depression there in what, like 1888, something like that. I mean, they were all over the place. Um just great history with that company. So I hope that you guys have learned something there and that you enjoy that. Um, 
we will continue to tweak that. Like I said, there's a lot of little different subsets, but I love that history part of it. I could just gobble this stuff up all day. And uh, hopefully I haven't bored you guys with that, but that's going to be the history piece of it. I appreciate you guys listening. Again, as I spoke about in the beginning, if you get a chance, leave a comment, five star, 17 star, whatever you can. I really appreciate everybody taking time out of their day to listen to us. We are at the one hour mark, so we're going to wrap this bad boy up. We're going to try and release the podcast every Monday so that you guys have them for your commutes and listening during the week and everything like that. Comments, suggestions, welcome. Let me know whatever you guys want to hear. I appreciate you. Thank you very much.